0: you haven't been around faith for very long, you may not realize that the long-standing history of our church, at least while I've been pastor, which is going on 28 years this August, is to be dedicated to the whole counsel of God's Word. You would think, duh, that's what the church does, that's what pastors do, that's why they're called preachers. But I'm telling you, even in the most conservative Bible-believing churches of today, pastors themselves are largely ignorant of what is in this book from Genesis to Revelation. Oh, they know subjects. They know topics. They know a lot of the New Testament but when you get into the Old Testament, especially, it's relegated to the heap of 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 archaic antiquities. Just, oh, it's nice, and yeah, you know, maybe you can read it in your personal devotion for whatever you're going to get out of it, which is probably not a whole lot. But as far as systematically teaching through the whole counsel of God's Word, the good, the bad, the ugly, the easy to hear, the hard to hear, and everything in between just goes by the wayside to make sure that We can continue to draw people and make them feel welcome and feel good when they leave here. And that is pretty much akin to a physician who goes into practice and his number one goal, no matter what the presentation to that physician is with their new patient, he's only going to be upbeat and positive. No matter what he has to ignore even though the lab tests just came back and they are dire no matter the fact that there's a raging cancer going on in this body well, i don't want to give them a really bad day by telling them what's wrong you say well come on that's ridiculous that would be that would be professional malfeasance to say the least i know it would and the pulpits across america are full of of professionals who are getting away with professional malfeasance by teaching the easy, the sugar-coated, the bubble gummy, the syrupy, without really wrestling themselves. That's not the way it's ever been at faith while I've been here. Nor will it be while I'm here. So today we continue in 1 Samuel. And while I've said all that, I am the first one to concede that not everything in this Bible is clear-cut. Not everything in this Bible is easy to understand, and there are still, after 40-plus years of rigorous devotion to the whole counsel of God's Word in a systematic way, I probably have more questions today than I did when I was a young believer. But what I tell every college student that I have the opportunity to tell is that please hear this, and I say this for everyone's instruction today, that when you go out there, speaking to the college students in particular, and you are assaulted, which you will be by today's professionals, because the satanic intent against the world of Christ is in full scale. And the assault against Christians and against God's Word at least in this nation, is unprecedented for our country's history. And it's only going to get worse. I'm absolutely convinced. So I just tell you this, that they will come to you and they will pull stuff out of here and they will have you scratching your head because they will be reading verses here and there and they will have the degrees behind their name and they will sit there and put, put doubts into your mind and ask questions that, that certainly you can't answer. Oh, but they will have an answer. It may be horse-pucky, but they will have an answer and they will convince you by their authority and by their eloquence that, wow, they just shredded the Bible. Hmm, now what do I do? So hear this. When you are posed a question or you just come up with a question on your own that you cannot seem to find a clear, good answer to, that doesn't mean that there isn't an answer to it. It simply means you don't know it yet. I still have questions, as I said, when I read this. And when I go through and I read that, I go, yeah, you know, Lord, it's been 40 years. I'm still kind of baffled by that one. Today? No, not today. Okay. Maybe next week. Maybe next year. Maybe never. And I'm okay with that. But with the ability... And the gifting that God has granted me and the calling that he's laid upon me, it is incumbent upon me to do due diligence in trying to get answers, truthful answers, logical, consistent, scriptural answers to the tougher questions. And this morning, why this introduction? Because it's one of those days. Not everything in the Bible is easy, and I admit that. And a lot of questions, no, some questions that the scholars bring are legitimate questions. We are told in the scriptures that God is love. We are told that categorically in that phrase in First John 1 in the New Testament, God is love. But, as we certainly read through the whole scriptures, we see from Genesis to Revelation that the whole Bible is about God's love, albeit couched within history that is that is often very violent as it has been thus far in the book of first Samuel, and as we'll talk about a little bit today about that violence and putting that against uh, trying to fit that into a God who is love it it yeah if you're already predisposed to being critical of this as being just a humanly authored book, you're going to find contradictions. But most of those contradictions I found, again, have answers. Unfortunately, I can't remember most of them. (laughs) God is love and we see the apex of that as we gaze at the cross of Calvary. God showing his love demonstrably in perfection and taking upon himself the penalty for your and my sins. When God came to this planet, he came, we are told in John, not to be confused with 1 John, the Gospel of John, that Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. But when we start with this theological premise that God is love, what we do is we, or what we need to do is we have to believe that even in the hardest and the harshest dealings with of God, with the world as we see in here and read in here, but in our personal lives, we have to believe that God still is love and that He truly has, and even in those hard places, in those hard to explain times, our very best at heart in the long run. But one thing that we cannot overlook and this is often overlooked, is the all-important qualifying stipulation that the statements that I've just made ever so broadly are predicated on belonging to the family of God. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Take the very often quoted promise that we find by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together, together for good. Let's stop there. It is too often used to prop up just everyone and anyone and basically mankind in general who is having a tough day or is having no joy or they're getting depressed in life and they have no heading or feel no purpose in life and calling. And so we think we're going to make them feel better by saying, well, you know, God causes all things to work together for good. But the reality is that that promise is very specific to a particular group of people, which if you only read the second half of the verse, it's right there, tells us that. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's a big qualifier. The promise applies only to those who have truly put their confidence and their faith and their trust in the true God of the Bible. So here we are, we are in First Samuel 15, back in the Old Testament, as Walter Kaiser used to say. And we've spent now several months with King Saul, and we've seen that he's an individual of habitual disobedience. And not of the normal, what I would call normal kinds, but in the habitual disobedience of the commands of God himself, delivered to him through the prophet and priest Samuel. King Saul, from the very beginning, as we have seen, has struggled with impatience and with arrogance. And he's, he has this knack of not overtly blowing off Samuel's divine authority, but basically taking that seriously, but and modifying it to his own timetable, or his own methods, or his own opinions. And this all catches up to him when, as the last straw, God had arranged the total solution for Saul and God's people concerning the warring nations. But instead of following the divine plan for peace in the Middle East, Saul did what Saul thought was best. And before we go clacking our tongues in annoyed disgust, let's try and own that this is every one of our own besetting sins. Every one of us. It differs only by matter of degrees. So let me throw this out here. It's today. And let's imagine a Middle East peace plan that has been delivered by God There's no question about that. It's been delivered by God, but of course, through human agency, but which again, God has designed himself. By the time it goes through process, by the time it wends its way across the nations and to the heads of state and to the generals who get their say, and then and you get the diplomats all involved, and there's give and take and remodifying all this and that. And by the time it's implemented, It's a mere silhouette of the actual plan. And so guess what? Sooner or later, usually sooner, it fails. This has been King Saul's lot as we've been studying him. We pick up in 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 10, going through 11, the first part of that verse. So then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. Parenthetically, I add, again, and has not carried out my commands. Does that give you pause? Does what give me pause? The Lord regrets making Saul king. I mean, if God is all-knowing, etc., and everything else that goes with that, and that we, we believe, we say we believe about His divine character, how can God possibly have regrets about anything that seems to imply, or in fact has to imply, it seems, that there's a lack somewhere along the line of whatever the process was to make a decision that God would regret it. but let's deal with it rather than jumping on a slip and slide and pretending that it doesn't exist. Remember the slip and slides? They were big in my day when I was a kid. I guess they're still around, but I don't know. How can the Lord regret anything or be sorry about anything or change his mind or repent which is the way the specific word used here in the Hebrew is variously translated. Well, this is, confessedly, another one of those concepts that pseudo-scholars like to grab hold of and take a hold of it and start ringing Every bit of criticism against the Bible from it that they can. Because after all, an all-knowing God would be or should be beyond the realm of having regrets. He should be beyond the realm of changing his mind or being sorry about anything. But the text does say, I regret that I made Saul king. And the same word used in Genesis chapter 6, is translated, I am sorry that I made mankind. And again, in Exodus chapter 32, it says the same word translated, the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And then it's used twice more in the book of Amos for change his mind. This is a situation where it's a legitimate question, If it's asked in the pursuit of truth. It's a warning. This is one of those days I told you it would be. Well, I'm going to start this in talking about linguistics. But not too long, I hope. First of all. I have. I had to take Russian. I have no idea why. When I was in junior high in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, I continued it in high school since I'd had it in junior high in Missouri. Studied Hebrew, still work in it. Studied Greek, still work in it. And I'm struggling right now with Spanish to become more proficient in it in view of a potential future to be ministering in Central America, perhaps. And I can tell you that Old Testament Hebrew, which, by the way... You need to understand, I mean, I know I presume a lot of things, but I bet if you ask Joe Blow out there about Old Testament Hebrew, they know basically nothing about it. Um, But they would assume, oh yeah, Hebrew, that's what they speak in Israel. But the Hebrew that's used in the Old Testament is a dead language. It is not the same Hebrew that they use in Israel today, which means that the people who understood the Hebrew truly fluently and were part of the cultures of the day in which it was the act of language. They understood the nuances and the the innuendos of words that are so, so plaguing, even to us today in our own language. Hebrew is a rather imprecise language as compared, for example, to the Greek that's used in the New Testament, which is a very precise language. So that in and of itself gives all sorts of room for for sloppy, if not outright erroneous translation so point number one is the imprecise nature of what I would call the fluidity of Old Testament Hebrew. the Lord did not regret in the sense that we think of regret as coming from, ooh, we got more information, we see the outcome, it's bad, we didn't anticipate such an outcome. If I'd had, I never would have gone there, and boy, now do I regret it. Well, when we think about God in terms of regretting something, that's problematic for the reasons I just stated. And it gets even worse when you think about God changed his mind. What, What do you mean God changed his mind? He knows everything all at once. He's not gaining knowledge and making good decisions. If he's changed his mind, then he's screwed up somewhere. Right? It's the way it seems. But what the word is used here in this particular situation, and the other examples that I mentioned, is literally a three-letter word pronounced naham. like you're getting up that good one in the morning. (laughs) Necham takes on part of the semantic range of the word. The what? You need to elbow the person next to you, wake them up. The semantic range of a word. We know what it is, whether we know what it is or not. Okay? Think of the word cool. You touch the refrigerator on the inside. Ooh, that's cool. You even say it's cold. But then you look at a car and you go, whoa, that's a cool car. Really? Has it got a great air conditioner or what? Oh, same word, different different part of the semantic range. Or those shoes are really cool. Again, huh, that's a little different. And what about that cold refrigerator? Dude, that is so cold. Really? Let me feel your forehead. I don't... OK, so you see, we all deal with semantic range, but we don't give them a thought because we are part of the and parcel of the culture and, and the the uh, 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 idiosyncratic ways that we use those words. So we get it without even thinking about it. But when we come to a foreign language, it's a different story now. So what does Necham mean if it doesn't ne- mean regret, if it doesn't mean repent, if it doesn't mean sorry or to change his mind? Well, it's not that it doesn't mean those things. It, it kind of sort of means that. But point number two is that we're talking about a foreign language. And you have heard this phrase, well, that got lost in translation, Right? It means that, okay, I mean, even for someone who's fluent in a language, uh, and this happens to my, my son and daughter-in-law. I mean, my son-in-law is, is uh, is, Spanish is his first language. He's Salvadoran. My daughter is fluent in Spanish. But even now and then, David will go, uh, Katie, what? And Katie will go, David, what the? And they're fluent. Okay, so linguistics gets gets kind of crazy here. So some things just get lost in translation. Some things don't translate well from one language to another. For example, okay, this is in Korea. Playing dangerous game like a yo-yo is not allowed here. All right, I mean, I, that one I at least understand. I, remember the cat's cradle and then you go into around the world? Come on, old people with the yo-yos. Okay. Try round the world in a crowded place. That, you can not somebody cold. With, so I get that one. Okay. Next one. All right. If you're ever in Korea again, and you're having problems with your soy soybean ketchup, you know where to go. Ah, uh, yeah. Let's take the luggage of foreigners, no charge. <laughs> that one again. I I hope I know what they mean. Okay. And this this is incredible, some kind of, I don't know, Chinese man, who knows. The great quote from Thomas Alves in The Inventor of the Light Bulb, All is not what a real value you cannot through hard work and hard to get. Say what? I'm going to get that tatted on my arm, that's so profound. No idea what that means. And I love this one. Carefully slip and fall down. That's just good advice. Okay? So when you see our yellow little stands out there that the floors are wet, if you're going to fall down, do it carefully. All right. Is that, oh, oh, yeah. You better be very careful, right, when you grab that hand grenade to extinguish the fire. Is that it? Are we done? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Some things just don't translate real cleanly. Okay. So what we mean by gets lost in translation now here's what is another amazing thing about the inspired infallible and errant authoritative word of god god because he does know everything and he is not the god of in, of confusion he anticipates though That just for example, in this passage, you know, we may have some issues with this whole idea of God supposedly regretting his decision that he made Saul king. Which is why later in this chapter, verse 29, it underscores the unchanging nature of God. He doesn't change his mind in the sense that we're used to thinking of. It's almost as if God is saying in verse 29, I understand that the nuances of the language may be problematic for some. So at the end of the day, verse 29, here's what I want you to just remember always. The glory of Israel, a great title for God, will not lie... He will not change his mind or regret or repent or feel sorry for, for he is not a man that he should change his mind or have regret or lie or repent. Again, all the same word. So again, just kind of tying this together a little bit, I hope. Verse 11, God says, I necham that I made Saul king. And in verse 29, we're reminded, just remember, God will not deceive, nor necham. And the NAS says, change his mind, whereas the ESV has it right and just talks about um, repenting or having regret in a particular situation. It's just, anyway. <sighs> Saul's issue was that he seemed to always have a better idea. And you might think back to two weeks when I talked about arrogance in particular and we defined it and viewed it, you know, in light of who Saul was, right? It's an over-estimated an over, uh, uh, estimated, uh, worth of yourself or your importance, okay? Kind of like the Howie Carr moments, you know, I love it when he always goes, you know who I am. <laughs> Never mind. But when Samuel spoke, from God, he was speaking what is called ex cathedra. Meaning he was speaking directly out of the very authority of God Almighty when he was delivering the message to Saul. And Saul paid lip service to it, like I said. But then he either basically ignored it or completely ignored it, but more often than not, he would take it then and just kind of tweak it and he would do with it and apply it the way that he deemed best. And we all know that frankly, this is the prerogative of mankind. We all have the obligation to take what's here and to read it, even the stuff we understand, but then, then we give ourselves permission either in, rea- in, by action or by thought to do what we want with it. Well, yeah, I know that's what it says, but. Okay, if you ever find yourself saying, I know that's what it says, but, have if you don't want to slap yourself, have somebody slap you and wake you up. Because you need to stop right there. No, if you know what it says, then you need to do what it says. Now, I know what it says, but, here's the way I'm going to modify it so I can live with it. Back uh, quite a few years ago now, when I was doing uh, the three times a week commentaries on the radio called Cripe's Corner, And uh, I would give my uh, opinions, although they were rigorously, biblically grounded, of very controversial issues of the day uh, more often than not. And at the end of what I think was over a thousand commentaries by the time I was done, I ended every one the exact same way. Because I knew that there would be skeptics out there who would say, yeah, but I just, yeah, I don't believe that though. Well, I don't agree with that. Well, that's not what I think. I get that, okay? So I ended every single commentary saying, that's my opinion. You don't have to agree with it, but if it's right, you can't avoid the consequences. This is Pastor Bill Kripe coming to you from Kripe's Corner. (laughs) That is indelibly etched in there. So think... Today, not about they, them, and those, but about here, us, now, and the church that wears Jesus' name that is very conservative and still supposedly Bible-believing. Pornea, wide semantic range, which encompasses, we get the word, pornography from it. It's becoming more and more and more accepted and widespread, even within Christian homes, not just among men, but among women. Infidelity, again, broad semantic range. Fornication, really broad semantic range for sexual misconduct, not just adultery. And then think about drugs, pharmakeia, sometimes translated sorcery, the word from which we get pharmacy. Yeah, that's what it's from. And think about tithing. Okay, now you just stopped preaching and started meddling, pastor. We can say, well, you know, I I just don't see it that way. It's your prerogative. But if it's right, no one can escape the consequence. Now let me get down and dirty in a way (laughs) and really personal. How do you react, and I certainly am including myself in this, but how do you react when somebody does stupid things? I'm not talking about normal, routine, stupid things, right? We all do stupid things. Holy cow. Hang around me for a day. (laughs) You're going to go, really? Wow. We all do stupid things, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who does the same stupid thing Over and over and over repeatedly with an incessant ritual of habitual redundancy time and time again. (laughs) Did you see what I did there? Seven times in that one sentence I repeated myself. Samuel had the right to be furious with Saul. Samuel had the right to be done with Saul. Saul. He had the right, in a sense, to be joyful that finally Saul was getting what he deserved. But Samuel, we don't find him rejoicing. Look at verse 11b. Samuel was distressed and he cried out to the Lord all night. Back in chapter 13, Saul had been informed that his kingdom was on its way out. And Samuel is now seeing it come to pass. And Samuel and Saul had not seen each other since the battle with the Amalekites until this next passage. Verse 12. So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. That's was pretty good ego. Then turned out and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Saul said to Samuel, Oh, in my most, my most holy religious tone perhaps, How blessed are you of the Lord, Samuel. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And I see Samuel's bubble up there that he's not saying, going, No, no, you have, what? No, you haven't. But Samuel comes at it with objective reality rather than just human impassioned emotion. Verse 14, Samuel said, and this is great. This is a great way to argue, by the way. Don't argue on the minutia. What do you mean? No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I... that gets real far, doesn't it? So Samuel doesn't even argue. He just says, huh, okay, you did everything the Lord commands you. Well, well, then then I got a question. I'm just looking for information here. What then is the eating of the sheep? In my ears. And the lowing of the oxen which I hear. What's he alluding to? He's alluding to the fact that God had given the command to destroy all the animals, take nothing. And Saul without missing a step, and I picture him with his chest sticking out proudly, he says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. And I'm going, where? What do you mean they? Who's they? You mean your army of over, of whom you are commander in chief? You're throwing them under the chariot? Contextualized, you see. Oh, but they brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Again, whose people? My people! Spared the best. This guy's quick on his feet though, I'll give him this. They spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest, we've utterly destroyed in complete fulfillment of the command that God gave me. This is what he's saying. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop! (laughs) And let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul, like he has any choice, says, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true that you were little in your own eyes and you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are exterminated. And last time we were together two weeks ago, remember God specified man, woman, child, infant, babies, and even all the animals. Nothing is to be left alive. And if you weren't here for that and you're going, that's the God of love? We talked about that two weeks ago. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now, he's nailed dead to rights. You'd think, okay, I'm throwing in the towel. But no, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9 says, the heart is more deceitful above all else and is desperately corrupt, meaning we can lie to ourselves greatly. Then Saul said to Samuel, (laughs) I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Okay, what's coming is in the annals of poor excuses even for Saul is a doozy. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. The fact that he even refers to them as the animals devoted to destruction, he's already just confessed, whether he meant to or not, that, yeah, I know we were supposed to kill him, but, but, I know what it says, but, I know what I heard, but, Samuel's giving him that, but it's too late. Saul, instead of being castigated, is looking for a little medal, a medal for his spirituality. Yes, we brought back the finest of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. Saul's dumbfounded that Samuel would accuse him of doing anything wrong. (laughs) And I was thinking about this. I was trying to think of what would be a kind of a, where. oh yeah, yeah, I get that now. Imagine a truly devout Christian who for whatever reason, you know, desperate, who knows, you know, desperate people do desperate things. Anyway, he's a Christian. He robs a bank and of course he gets caught. And now his pastor is going to visit him in jail. And the pastor's like, God, what what in the world were you thinking? <laughs> and Joe Parishioner, or Brother Gumball, I like to call him, you know, he says, what are you getting so worked up about? I was planning to tithe on it. <laughs> okay? Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. I get it. Samuel then br- begins a brief soliloquy that we all would do well to let sink in. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, doing what God wants is always superior to simply being religious. And then he adds, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Do you realize how serious that is? Divination? Look up what the punishment for divination was in the Old Testament. And insubordination, interesting but strange little Hebrew word there that literally means pushing. What? Rebellion is the sin of divination and pushing is as iniquity and idolatry. Again, we're not, we're not Hebrews living in the Old Testament days. The pushing there, the Hebrew means to be pushing your agenda, yourself upon the situation. Oh. Doing it your way instead of his way is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I see Saul as another potential rising star who is derailed by personal ambition, pride, and rank disobedience. How different things could have been for Saul if he had had the same heart that David, King David, who we'll meet later on, that David had after he was brought low by the prophet Nathan for his murderous and uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Listen to David's confession after he is hammered point blank by Nathan. David says, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings, meaning playing the religion game is not merely worthless. It is offensive to God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God. That is what you will not despise. Verse 24, Saul responds with a pseudo remorse that I find common among toddlers and among adolescents and even, yes, we adults. Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, Okay, okay, uncle, I get it, right? I sinned, okay. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words. Blah, 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 because I feared the people. See, I'm a victim. I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, okay, you got me. Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And we can just call everything good. Obviously, I'm taking some liberty there in my own reading of the text. But I believe that what Saul Saul fully means there is, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry that I have been caught. And I'm sorry that there are consequences that I'm going to have to endure. Not I'm sorry that I have let the Lord down. Not I am sorry I'm broken hearted having blown the trust that the holy God of the universe placed in me and the responsibility. Saul can't sweep the reality of his sin under the rug fast enough. And Samuel replies, I will not return with you Saul for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Hey, you don't speak to the king that way. I'm pulling rank here. Samuel, as he turns to go, Saul seizes the edge of the prophet and the priest's robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel, the, ver- the verse we talked about at the beginning about language and the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, i.e. regret, i.e. repent, i.e. be sorry for, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Now let's go beyond that. Okay. Can we get beyond that? Are you happy now? But please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Are you kidding me? Saul is still wrapped around the axle of himself. Okay, whatever I got to say, whatever you want me to do. Yes, I'm really sorry. Now, so that I look good in the eyes of the people when I go back, come on with me. So Samuel did go back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. But there's still some cleanup to do clean up regarding what God had initially told the king to do concerning his plan for the Middle East peace. Samuel says, bring me a gag. (laughs) That's how it's pronounced. Not like, okay, so, hey, a king and a priest walks into the bar, and he says, I don't know, it's... Got to keep you with me there. Wake me up. Bring me a gag, the king of the Amalekites. Question. This is the king of the devastated, decimated army. Is there anybody in the Hebrew camp that is not aware of the fact that they have the king and that he is the king that they've been at war with? So why are we given that little detail? Bring me a gag. The king of the Amalekites. It makes me wonder what kind of treatment he was receiving by Saul and his gang. Meaning, seems like, could mean, he, he was being treated so well, he's like, okay, <laughs> hey, you know what? Yeah, Battles are nasty. War is, is, is ugly and everything else. But you know what? Let's get beyond all that, okay? Let bygones be bygones. I only killed how many thousands and, you know, hey, it's all in a day's work. And I say that because Agag came to him, we are told, cheerfully. Really? And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Again, Let's just get along now. This is rather bizarre talk about someone who is maybe delusional or he's out of touch with reality. And so again, it just makes me wonder, what was the relationship between Agag and Saul? But Samuel is the one in charge now. And Samuel says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed a gag to pieces. Not King Saul, which would have been his job, but Samuel, the prophet and high priest. He hewed a gag. He didn't just kill him. He hewed him to pieces before the Lord. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, meaning they went their separate ways. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord nahamed the same word that he had made Saul king over Israel. Take two things away today at least. Religious pretense is not merely worthless, it is offensive to God. Meaning playing the, in our context, playing the Christian game, having the pretense, having the facade, having the language, the lingo, and everything else. But I tell you, there is a pandemic today amongst the so-called Bible-believing Christians because our, either our knowledge of the Word or our willingness to subject ourselves to the knowledge of the Word is getting so increasingly lower that, again, I've said it before, that we are barely distinguishable from they, them, and those out there who make no pretense about having even a faith in any God whatsoever. What do I mean? Go back to those things that I mentioned earlier today, Christian fiancés living together is absolutely, I would say, is way more common than uncommon. And I don't believe for a second, in fact, I know for a fact, that many, if not all of them that I have had personal contact with, never sat there and said, wow, I didn't know that, I didn't know that was wrong, no. As soon as I start talking about it, oh, and I bring it up, they go, oh, get lower, how low can we go before we're out of his sight behind his desk? But see, I, I know what God says, but. And think about all the other things, the other subject matters that the church has brought in upon itself. And today, in formerly very conservative, you've heard it from me if you've been around, the Bible-believing church is dumbing down what the scriptures are clear about concerning homosexuality, concerning transgender, concerning perverse sexuality of all kinds. They just keep getting more and more and more like the world out there. And that's the church who is supposed to know better. That is worthless religion. It is offensive religion. The second thing I want you to take away again is that just because you don't have an answer to something and it seems, wow, that's just as black and white as it can be. I don't think that... There's no way I can see that that can be reconciled. I used to say that sort of thing in seminary about every week. And then the professor would get in there and he'd do that. Kind of like what I did with you, only way worse. And I'd go, well, I'll be... And I've just learned, just because I don't have the answer doesn't mean there isn't a good answer. And so we come back around to faith in the God who never changes, who's never caught off guard, who has no reason to be sorrowful, sorry, or regret in the sense that we want to understand it. He is the everlasting, ever-living, merciful, patient God of love indeed does work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes you did well staying awake I didn't see too many around here. Jim Jim Higgs one of our elders needs to be more careful in a parking lot I guess had issues in a parking lot this morning coming to church.
1: Not in our parking lot, I might he add. He didn't want to say, oh, am I on? He didn't want to say that uh, I had a fender bender this morning <laughs> and uh, nobody got hurt, which is the blessing. And I got to meet two great young men, uh, one from the <laughs> University of Maine. He's a, uh, he's a junior. He's taken civil engineering. And the other one is telling, going to some college someplace down in Auburn. They were going fishing. And uh, I was turned into a parking lot, and they decided to meet me on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Small damage, but, hey, we'll get over it. That's what we have insurance for, eh? So uh I guess I'm supposed to pray and not tell any more stories. So why don't we take a moment in prayer? Heavenly Father, with this message today shows your righteousness, your holiness, and it never, never is compromised. Father, there is somebody here today who has been waiting to hear your voice call them. I pray today through the power of the Holy Spirit, they hear that voice and they stop doing it their way, and they start doing it your way. Father, we think of the memorial uh, days tomorrow with those that are in this church that have lost loved ones. We lift them up to you, O oh God. We thank you for the many who you have called to fight for the freedom which we enjoy pray that that freedom, oh God, will realize where it comes from and it flows down from heaven. And I pray that each one of us can be used in somebody else's life to show who Jesus is and the sacrifice that the Father made, giving up his son for us and through that blood that was shed. We step from hell into the kingdom. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.